When you think of the word hero, what comes to your mind? Perhaps when you think of the word hero, you think of a soldier. That is uh, someone who, because of his military feats, because of his sacrifice, that he has won honor. And perhaps that's what you think of when you think of the word hero. Perhaps when you think of the word hero, you think of a police officer or some type of emergency personnel member who, because of a sense of duty, has won respect from individuals. Or perhaps you take a different tactic. You think of an accomplished athlete and someone who, through a sporting feat, has won respect and has won fame even, perhaps. And in one sense, all of these individuals, they all properly have earned a sense of acclaim, a sense of praise. But our text this morning and the scripture reading this morning that we read together comes from Hebrews chapter 11. It's sometimes referred to as the Great Faith Hall of Fame. Those individuals that are listed there are sometimes referred to as heroes of the faith. And thank you for bringing the service together, not only with a scripture reading, but with a song by faith. At one point, I was thinking of sending that along as a recommendation to sing this morning, but someone was reading my mind and I already chosen, had already chosen that song, evidently. But when we come to Hebrews chapter 11, this great faith hall of fame, these heroes of the faith, I think what we see is a different idea of what it means to be a hero. In this chapter, a hero is an ordinary person trusting an extraordinary God. An ordinary person trusting an extraordinary God. And the hero this morning we'll be looking at is that of Moses. You see in verses 23 through 29, sandwiched between Joseph, who ends in verse 22, and the Israelites at the Battle of Jericho, who begin verse 30, we find this, this exhibit relating to Moses. So what we have done is we have entered into the door, the portal of the Hall of Faith. Above that door, above that archway, is inscribed the idea that faith is the confidence of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So we read that above the doorway. We enter into the hallway. And then on both sides, we have these exhibits of heroes of the faith. And here we come to Moses. He's mentioned 11 times in the book of Hebrews. The specific section of Hebrews 11 naturally divides into five parts. In that sense, this text was very easy to outline for the sake of the sermon because that phrase, by faith, happens five times right within the text. The first time that that phrase occurs is in verse 23. The second, by faith, begins verse 24. That's a longer one, extends through verse 26. The third part begins with by faith in verse 27. The fourth segment begins with by faith in verse 28. And the fifth and final section begins with by faith in verse 29. And each text portion, we can say that each lap of this race of faith describes a characteristic of faith in action. And they're all tied to this hero of the faith, Moses, from the Old Testament. Our goal this morning is to take these five characteristics of faith, what it means uh, to live actively by faith, that is to have an act of faith that shows itself out through our lives and to kind of put our lives paralleled with this text and to see how our lives measure up. And then, Lord willing, through God's grace, uh, to be exhorted uh, to further life transformation by his grace in our lives. Before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do praise you that you are the same God who was at work in the life of Moses as he led uh, the people of Israel, your people from the Old Testament that you are the same God is at work 
uh, today, and you are at work in our lives if we are trusting in you and looking to you and following you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to leave here this morning changed people because of this text that you have given to us for this day, for this week, we pray in your son's name. Amen. The first characteristic of a faith, of an active faith, is that faith reveres God's precepts. It reveres God's commands, or even we could say God's authority. This verse says in verse 23, by faith Moses, so that's that phrase that appears five times. This first trait, though, actually goes behind Moses back to Moses' parents, because it says, by faith Moses, when he was born. Now, to remember, to give ourselves context here, to remind ourselves, the context here is Egypt. The Pharaoh was one who did not love the people of Israel. He was a Pharaoh who did not remember how Joseph had helped out the Egyptians. And this Pharaoh had said if any male baby was born into a Hebrew family, that that male baby was to be put to death. So this would be a test for Moses' parents. So by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. The book of Exodus itself tends to emphasize the role of his mother, Jochebed. That would be the, the wife and the mother here. But the Septuagint mentions parents, plural. And the book of Hebrews kind of carries along with that. So we have the father, Amram, who's mentioned in passing in the book of Exodus, along with Jacobed, that both of them, by faith, are going to hide baby Moses. And I think we could say, on a logical level, if the mother is hiding a baby in the home, it's kind of hard for the father not to know that's happening, right? So the two of them together, uh, they are being more obedient to God than they are fearful of the Pharaoh. Why? Because it says here, they saw he was a beautiful child. That word can be translated beautiful, eye-catching, well-pleasing. The Septuagint has as an understatement, he was not ordinary. But, but I think this phrase means more than simply like good looks. I think it refers to also his nature, his character, and the fact that he had a destiny before God. Because in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, there, Stephen uh, declares that he was well-pleasing to God. So it's not simply that he was a well-pleasing, good-looking baby. Every mother thinks that their baby is the greatest-looking baby in the world, I'm sure. But this baby had uh, a plan in God's, uh, in God's eyes and a destiny before God. Then what we find here is that Pharaoh's command is pitted against God's command. Pharaoh had commanded all of the male babies be put to death, they be killed. But the parents respected or revered God's commands more than Pharaoh's commands. It's really quite parallel to the Hebrew midwives of chapter 1 in the book of Exodus. There it states that the midwives, quote, feared God. Now, Jochebed and Amram, they could see Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh was right there as a living, breathing monarch of a kingdom. They could see Pharaoh. They could hear Pharaoh's edict with their own ears. But remember, when we entered into this hallway, the art said, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Although they could see Pharaoh, they could hear Pharaoh, they respected and revered an even greater authority. Although they could not see this master, and they could not hear him directly. And therefore, because they respected a greater Lord and a greater master, this verse ends by saying they were not afraid of the king's command. That is, they had a higher respect and a higher reverence for Jehovah himself. Now, fear is an amazing thing. 
When I first heard this story, I had to check it up and actually did find some newspaper copies of the story from 1974. The news broke out in Turin, Italy. It was reprinted in American newspapers here uh, in the days that followed. And in this case, it's from an Ohio newspaper is where I found this. Ernesto Cadaldi was 77 years old. He had been found apparently lifeless by his neighbors and a, death, a doctor had produced a death certificate. The undertakers put him inside of a coffin. And while he was lying down there, suddenly he came to, he sat up inside the coffin and asked why the undertakers had been called. And then unfortunately, he collapsed right away again and actually did die of fright. I mean, this, you have this irony of someone who has strong fear in his life. And I could actually, under, if I woke up in a coffin, I think I might have a similar reaction of how, well, how he reacted in that scenario. Fear is a powerful force. Fear does amazing things to us and in us. But the question is, are we going to be like Jochebed and Amram, who are not afraid of the king's command? They did not let it control them because they had a greater respect for God's commands. What about us? We are, in fact, to respect authorities in our lives. But even more, we are to respect God's authority. Acts 5.19 states, we, speaking from the apostles, we ought to obey God rather than men. Even though we can't see God, by analogy, we can still respect and fear God. Think, for example, of a family here um, in, in the States, and let's say that uh, the husband, let's say, the father in this case, is off in Afghanistan or Iraq. He, he is fighting in the military. I think we could all picture a mother telling her small child, we still respect daddy even though we can't see him. So I think by analogy, we can think of that concept of, of respecting, of revering a figure that we can't currently see at the time. Of course, what's different is that none of us have seen God literally with our eyes um, at any time. We weren't alive when Christ was incarnate upon earth, but yet we can revere his precepts. Secondly, the second characteristic of faith, active faith, is that faith embraces God's priorities. This is the long one. Verses 24 to 26, but it begins with the same phrase, by faith. Here we find that Moses, yes, he was preserved by his parents' faith. We've seen that. But he was also nurtured by their faith. And now they have passed their faith on to him. So this is the second lap of this race of faith. They have handed over the baton over to him. And he's picked up the baton. Now he is running on his own. Hodge states that all this passage is a classic presentation of the way that faith Chooses. This passage states, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So this, this passage talks about choices that Moses will make as he grows up. According to a tradition found in Josephus, this is an extra-biblical tradition, probably legendary, when Pharaoh's daughter brought the baby Moses to the king, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh took a crown and put it right on top of Moses' head. And even as an infant, according to this tradition, Moses takes the crown, flings it on the ground, and stomps on it. He tramples on the crown. And it was just a way of saying that supposedly even as a child, Moses was beginning to kind of sort out his, his values, his priorities. Now, all of that childhood story, perhaps a fable, none of that is found in Scripture. What this text relates, as Scripture is God's word to us, 
This text emphasizes that Moses had become a mature man. You see how it says it there? It says that when he became of age, this was not simply a child's whim. This was not an adolescent's pipe dream. This was the deliberate choice of an adult who had become of age. And having become great, he was all grown up. Stephen says in Acts 7 that Moses was about 40 years old at this time. And as an adult, he faced some colossal decisions. He had to make some crucial choices with full knowledge of what he was doing. Verse 24 gives us these choices. He refused, so there's our first key verb here, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Refusing speaks of a deliberate choice, a definite act of the will, a heart renunciation of his position in Egypt. He did not want to be called Pharaoh's daughter, to be seen as a member of that, that royal family. Then verse 25 gives us the second verb, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This verb choosing also is one of a deliberate action of the will. And he had to choose between enduring ill treatment with the people of God. Now more often in the Bible, they're called the people of Israel. But they can also be called the people of God. This is more of a, a religious label rather than an ethnic label, the people of God. And it reminds us that really Moses is looking beyond his, his colleagues, beyond those uh, uh, fellow Jews of his to the God who stands behind them all, who called them and was calling them out of Egypt. Verse 26, a third verb, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And here he had to choose between the reproach of Christ, which implies a strong solidarity between the chosen people, the people of God, and the chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. There's this continuity that from this chosen people who would be rescued from Egypt would come the Messiah eventually, as we know, in the New Testament. So what did he turn his back on? He turned his back on the treasures of Egypt. Moses chose the pain and the shame over the pleasures and the treasures. F.F. Bruce says, it must have seemed an act of folly by all worldly standards. But he gave it all up. Why? Why would he give up? the treasures of Egypt, and the pleasures of sin that are but for a season. He gave them all up because he looked to the reward. Donald Guthrie, in commenting on this passage, states, Moses focused his gaze on a nobler target. Moses, through faith, saw a future reward with his eyes of faith. And the author of Hebrews, I think, is actually bringing this up because he wants his own readers to think similarly. Just the chapter before, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, the author exhorts the recipients by saying, Therefore, you do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And so he's using Moses as an example of someone who, through faith, looked forward to a greater reward than that which they could see at the moment with their own eyes. At the present, Moses could only see and feel and touch the treasures of Egypt, the grandeur the prestige of being part of the Egyptian aristocracy. But remember, above that archway was that statement, that explanation that faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And because of that, Moses could not see the future reward for godliness, but through faith he was convinced that it would come. This faith caused him to recognize God's priorities, 
He identified with the people of God and the reproach of Christ. Therefore, he identified with the Messiah. Now, if you notice that in the verse we read, Moses was still realistic. He recognized that even choices of a sinful habit of life had a level of pleasure, but he knew that those pleasures would pass, the passing pleasures of sin. In fact, one English translation has the transient pleasures of sin. He believed in an eternal reward, the ultimate reward that he would receive from God. And, and for us, in this day and age, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, we can't see these things, but through the eyes of faith that we know that they are, in fact, real. Leanne Morris says, it is faith that finally emerges then triumphant, not worldliness. Moses is far more famous than any pharaoh of that dynasty. I'm trying to think of how to illustrate Moses turning his back on the treasures of Egypt. And my mind was taken to the past century and how we have even a greater understanding of just how much Moses um, turned his back upon there in Egypt. In 1922, Howard Carter discovered King Tutankhamun's tomb, better known as King Tut. And according to the appraisal of the Museum of Ancient Art in Switzerland about a decade ago, King Tut's treasures was given a staggering replacement value of nearly three quarters of a billion dollars, about $750 million to replace what was left inside the tomb. I word it in that sense because most of the Egyptian pharaohs, they had far more treasures than we'll ever find. We rarely find anything because grave robbers had taken them. And King Tut was only a 19-year-old when he died. So think of someone who would have lived for decades as the pharaoh of Egypt, uh, amassing even more wealth through his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and so on. Just think of how much wealth a longer-living pharaoh could have amassed. But yet Moses, although he could see all of that, all of that gold and all those precious jewels, um, even the gold gilding of the most famous piece, the mask there of King Tut. That's the kind of stuff that Moses turned his back upon. Now, we probably won't be turning our, our backs upon golden burial masks from the Egyptian era, but we also face grave decisions. Decisions that concern our occupations, our marriages, our families. And when we face these decisions, it is important that we recognize the options of eternal significance, even to the point of sacrifice. For instance, an unsaved marriage partner may seem attractive now, but faith will vouch for the wisdom of marrying a growing Christian who loves the Lord and wants to follow him. Choosing to become a missionary or to enter into vocational ministry may not bring many material rewards, but through faith, one can see the eternal rewards of souls won for Christ. Even simply coming to church on a Sunday morning may not be as thrilling or as exciting in many people's eyes as tailgating perhaps at a Patriots game. But through the eyes of faith that we consider the importance of fellowship inside the community of faith that believes and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are important. I think many of you have heard the name of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary down in South America in the 1950s. I remember even in college, it wasn't because it was a sign as a textbook, I was just really interested in his life story and reading the book, but the diary of Jim Elliot's about that thick. And perhaps one of his most famous statements, 
uh, from that diary is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think many of you know the end of the story of Jim Elliot, how he died as a martyr uh, there ministering to uh, the Alka Indians and natives there um, in South America. Sin's tantalizing pleasures may seem overwhelming at the moment or even simply a disordered priority system. That is, um, these things may be good um, in our lives, but if we put them above that which is better, so even in cases it's not a sin, it's just disordering of values, uh, that, that can be tempting to do that. But faith looks beyond them to the natural consequences, the guilty conscience, and the divine displeasure. But not only does faith revere God's precepts and embrace God's priorities, it also perceives God's presence. It perceives God's presence. Verse 27, here's our third use of the phrase, by faith. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, if you read the book of Exodus, actually Moses leaves Egypt twice. Uh, one time he leaves Egypt in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. He flees over to Midian in the Sinai Peninsula. He kind of uh, ends up uh, join, joining together with a, a shepherd family there in Midian. And in a sense, that, that leaving Egypt would really fit the chronology here of Hebrews chapter 11. He's growing up. He's become an adult. He flees over to Midian. However, after that, Moses goes back to Egypt, and he flees a second time from Egypt, this time leading an entire body of people, the people of Israel. And this time, he never goes back to Egypt. And I think that you can make a good argument that that's the one that's being mentioned here because of the strong language of forsaking Egypt. It sounds like he's leaving Egypt. He's not going back again. He set his sights on obeying God and a strong decision to leave Egypt permanently, a permanent abandonment to lead the people of God to Canaan. And when he did so, was, was Pharaoh a happy camper? <laughs> no, he was very angry. Moses could see the anger written on Pharaoh's countenance. He could see the snarled lips. He could see the furrowed brow there upon Pharaoh. He could hear the anger in Pharaoh's words. He could feel the tenseness of the situation. But what's the explanation of faith as we enter into this exhibit? Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses was convinced, therefore, of another greater being who was present with him even though he couldn't see him. In fact, verse 27 makes this explicit. As seeing him who is invisible, which... When you read that phrase at first, that's actually a rather paradoxical phrase. How do you see someone who's invisible, right? But in this context, it goes back to this idea of the eyes of faith, seeing what cannot be seen physically. It was as if Moses actually saw the invisible God. Moses knew the presence of God was just as real as the presence of Pharaoh, and it gave him strength to bear the wrath of Pharaoh. Philo was a first century a Jewish writer, <clears throat> describes Moses as the beholder of the world of nature which cannot be seen, that could be discerned by the mind alone apart from that which could be seen. In the New Testament, we have a similar account of the Apostle Paul. The pastoral epistles, the last of those, probably written chronologically, not the last in our canon, but 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17. There Paul recounts his first trial 
before Caesar, the emperor of Rome, and he says, at my first defense, no one supported me. They all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. By faith, Paul, just like Moses, could sense God's presence even in the midst of severe opposition. And we all this morning, to some degree, we all face difficulties, trials, perhaps even opposition in our lives. In those times of testing, it is comforting, it is comforting to be aware of the presence of God who has promised never to leave us nor to forsake us. And for this sake, I will go a century earlier into the 1800s and David Livingston. David Livingston is perhaps the most famous, uh, most renowned missionary to Africa in the 1800s. And when David Livingston was sailing for Africa, the continent of Africa, for the very first time, he was standing there at, at the dock uh, with a, a group of his friends, and they had come down there to wish him bon voyage and send him on the ship and send them away. But one of them uh, really didn't want David to get on the boat, didn't want David to leave the safe shores of England and to go out into the unknown of Africa. And so this friend kept on reminding him of all the dangers that would confront him in the journey and on the mission field. And he was trying to convince him to stay in England. And in response, David Livingston, he took his copy of the scripture he opens it to Matthew chapter 28, which we would know as the Great Commission passage. And David reads aloud to his friend that text that says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the world. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the world. And turning to his friend who was trying to discourage him from leaving the mission field, in his own British style, David Livingston said, That, my friend, is the word of a gentleman. So let us be going. You see, God keeps his word. And God had promised David Livingston that he would never leave him nor forsake him, just as God had that promise with Paul and that promise with Moses. So often, though, in our lives, don't we live as practical atheists? Those who, in our minds, we, we give intellectual assent that, that God is, is present and he's omnipresent and so on, but we live as if he's not active in our lives. They're uh, working in our lives and, and seeing what we're doing in our lives. But by faith, we are to do that. Faith reveres God's precepts. Faith embraces God's priorities. Faith perceives God's presence. And fourth, faith rests upon God's promises. Verse 28, the fourth phrase, by faith. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Kept here actually could be translated as instituted, and perhaps uh, you have a different translation that has that word. He instituted the Passover, meaning this is the very first Passover ever. It's not like he's preserving a previous tradition, kept in that sense. It's kept in the sense of instituting for the first time the Passover. And, and why do they do that? Because God had promised that the angel of death would slay every firstborn male in Egypt unless there was blood sprinkled upon the doorposts of the entryway into that household, into that uh, dwelling, and upon uh, the, the roof or the, the bar above the door as well, the mantle of the door. Moses took stock in God's promises, and he rested upon them. He made sure, to the best of his ability, that all the Israelites, they took the blood of the Passover lamb, and with the hyssop, which would be like a brush-like plant, almost like a paintbrush, would paint the doorposts and the mantle of the entryway, so that the angel of death, the destroyer, would not touch them. 
Now, when Moses was told by God, the angel of death will come through. He will slay every firstborn male. Had Moses seen that yet? No, he hadn't seen that. You can't see the future literally yet. You can't with your physical eyes see that. It's the future. Once again, though, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses could not empirically see the future of the firstborn males, but by faith he was convinced of what he could not see because he was assured he acted. William A. Word has written, Faith in God makes a person undaunted, unafraid, undivided, and unflappable. Real faith results in active response, responsive action, and willing obedience. Faith is continuing to run the race, assured that you will get your second wind, Faith is focusing on God's promises and cropping out the world's discouragements. Faith is confidently expecting help from the source and promiser of all help. As believers, God has given us a myriad of promises, and they are contained in the scriptures. Many times we glibly say we believe the promises, but we don't act upon them. And God has given us many po- what I'll call positive promises. Things like, I will never leave you. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. My grace is sufficient for you. We'll call those positive promises. But the promise given to Moses, actually, we might call a negative promise, right? Unless you put the blood upon the doorpost, the firstborn male will be slain. And God has also told us things like, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Lord chastens every son whom he loves. And we know... That God will discipline sin, but sometimes in our stubbornness, we keep on sinning anyway. But the promise of God to judge sin is just as real as his promise never to leave us nor to forsake us. We need to react and build our lives upon both the so-called negative promises as well as the positive promises. We often like to claim the one and disdain the other, but by faith we will react to both. And of course, a famous a piece from the history of hymnody written by R. Kelso Carter, the hymn writer penned, standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail by the living word of God, I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. Fifth and finally, faith relies on God's provision. Faith relies on God's provisions. And here's the last phrase by faith, verse 29. By faith they, the children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. This is the last of the five laps of Moses' race of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11. And in the midst of this lap, Moses takes the baton of faith and he passes it on to the people of Israel, which reminds us that faith is not just taught, but it is caught. Moses passes on to the people his faith. But it has to become a personal faith. They have to embrace God's promises for themselves. Exodus 14 states, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold his peace. What was the context there? The children of Israel, being led by Moses, had left Egypt. They had crossed a little bit of the wilderness desert. They had come to the shores of the Red Sea. In front of them is a body of water. Behind them 
are the soldiers, the armies of Egypt, and around them is the desert, and they would feel trapped. What's going to happen? God is going to provide a way out. In fact, one could say just in the nick of time. G. Campbell Morgan, um, a, a famous a leader uh, of, of the church about 100 years ago as well, said, I am never tired of pointing out that the, great, the Greek phrase translated in the nick of in the, in, I'm sorry, in the time of need, is a colloquialism of which the nick of time is the exact equivalent, that we may have grace to help in the nick of time, in the time of need. Grace just when and where I need it. You are attacked by temptation, and at the moment of assault, you look to him, and the grace is there to help you in the nick of time. No postponement of your petition until the evening hour of prayer, but there turn to Christ with a cry of help, and the grace will be there in the nick of time of time. God provides for us. Sometimes it's just at the last moment, but God knows what we need, and he provides for us in his proper timing. Uh, a commentary in the book of Hebrews, written by George Guthrie, to kind of wrap this together for some application exhortation, says, if all I am and have and do differs little from my unbelieving neighbor, then I've embraced this world and its values. And I fool myself by saying I am living for another world, my life must be radically different in what I embrace. If we were to put this all together, we could ask our own selves and our own mind and heart, am I radically different from my unbelieving neighbors? If my life is characterized by an act of faith, it should be in such a manner that it changes the way I live so that I do such things as I respect and revere God's precepts that I embrace God and his promises and his presence in my life, and therefore it transforms me and it changes me. How would you and I live today, goes on George Guthrie, if we believed absolutely that God existed and loved us completely and had a destination for us that made all the world pale by just one square foot of its turf? How would we live if we believed that God cared about every action, every concern, and wish to reward us magnanimously for our faith. How would you and I live in the face of opposition if we believed in God, really believed as if our whole lives depended upon him? Our lives would be different. Take just this last point, this idea that faith in God is one that trusts or rests in God's provision. Just to take that one alone. Uh, for some reason, it really struck me until a couple years ago about how worry is a sin. It's easy for us to kind of, oh, I see that son in his life, I see that son in her life, and yet I'm kind of a worrywart. <laughs> I'm kind of a future-oriented person. My, my, my lovely wife is kind of like a here-and-now helpful spouse who balances me out, and I'm often like thinking about the future, and to my sinful detriment, then worrying about the future. But this passage is telling us that God provides for our needs. Now, obviously, we labor for a living, and we need to be mindful of the financial well-being if one's thinking of finances for ourselves and our families. And as someone has quipped, God provides the birds with food, but he doesn't throw it into the nest. That is, God gives us the ingredients for our daily bread, but he expects us to bake it. So we plan, we pray, we prepare, and we work, but we are not to worry. Psalm 37, verse 25 says, I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. That God provides for our needs, not, not like all our, 
our, our sinful, selfish desires and wants and whims, but he provides for our needs, just like he provides for the lilies of the field and the sparrows of the air. However, God's greatest provision is in Christ. Christ is the obedient son who perfectly revered and obeyed his father's precepts. Christ is the Messiah who embraced divine priorities, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ is the beloved son who lived in complete connection and fellowship with his father until that intense moment upon the cross when he became sin for us and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But up to that point, he had complete and absolute fellowship with his father and sensed God's presence in his life. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and is our Passover Lamb who has become sin for us. And do we rely and rest upon this provision of salvation and redemption from our own sin? That's the ultimate resting upon the provision of God. And God, in the Old Testament, rewarded the faith of Moses. As Augustine declared, faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. Someday we will be in heaven if we are believers in Christ for salvation from sin, and our faith, our eyes of faith, will see the reality for which we have hoped. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for this text. We thank you that you are a faithful God, that you are worthy as an object of our faith and our trust. We pray that we would glorify you this week by, by interacting with you as a trustworthy and faithful God so that people around us, they would notice that we depend upon you, that we rest in you, and that we magnify your faithfulness to those around us. We pray these things in your Son's name, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross for our sake and is now with you at your right hand. We pray this in his name.